Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's being driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Oh, what did you do today? I talked to Mr. Salt from Boys Clues. Nick Balaban is here. One half of the composing team for Boys Clues and the voice of Mr. Salt. We talk all about blue and being creative and diversity and inclusion and creating just a chill, authentic vibe during conversations, among other things. I love this guy, and this was a chat that I will never forget, and an evening well spent. So for those that don't know you, could you kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you've done over the years. And it's okay if it goes a little long, the elevator might get stuck. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I'm Nick Balaban, and I've, uh, I'm probably most well-known for being the voice of Mr. Salt and writing the music for Blues Clues. And then also wrote music for a lot of bubble guppies and wrote the music for uh all of uh word world and little bits of other things um i've got uh a couple of records out well one uh, under my own name and i don't know um i play with bands in the new york area and i'm always working on something so what's the most difficult part for you about being a creative person? Wow, what an interesting question. For, coming from a fellow creative, because we all have struggles and we all have, you know, difficult parts of our collective field. So what's the most difficult part for you? I think the most difficult part is figuring out who I am as a person and then translating that into whatever I'm creating uh, in a conscious, in a conscious way, you know? So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard because if you're aware of that, sometimes that the awareness gets in your way. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes if you just leave it, you are who you are and then it, it comes out fine, but you like to craft things up to a certain point. The most difficult part for me, to be honest, is, you know, I've been doing this podcast for over 13 years now, 
And what the difficult part for me is being pigeonholed as the podcaster with a disability. I don't want to. I don't want to be defined by my cerebral palsy. I I'm a pop culture nerd who happens right. to like this stuff. I don't want to be a poster child or sort of a you know, like a spokesperson for a disability. And I feel like when people lead with that, it just becomes not in the background and more the make-a-wish approach. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's getting back to who you are. That's not who you are. That's, you know, that's... But it's always going to be there regardless. Right, right. So... But for a while, I never used to talk about my disability on the podcast because I never wanted it to be the focal point or the poor me kind of approach. But then once I started talking about it, it created a conversation that you and I wouldn't otherwise have. Because then you could ask me questions about what's your life like? What do you go through? What is like? Because that's a whole different way of life that most people aren't privy to. Yeah. And I would think that uh, sharing these aspects of your life that are uh, unique to your situation is, is uh, actually helps you control the, uh, the dialogue and the perception of who you are. Yeah. And I think the kind of reasoning behind that was my disability is always going to be there. It's always going to be a part of me. And when I started doing this podcast, I was trying to be this fast-talking, top-40 radio jock. And that clearly was not me. It was all about what I wanted to do now is just create conversations and hopefully impact people along the way. To, oh man, that's great! You're actually going to have more of an impact than you would if you uh, could sound like a you know really smooth, fast talking, uh, top forty type guy. Yeah, and it. I'm so glad that you and I are just having a conversation. You're not being interviewed. You're not being do the voice like. That's not me. I mean, yeah. as much as Mr. Salt is my homeboy, and, like, I love him to death. <laughs> but, like, we'll get to that. But for yeah. now, it's all about our collective creative journeys and sort of, um, you know, getting it out into the world. Because somewhere, someone needs to hear a conversation like this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's good uh, to know, to impart as much as you can about, I mean, for instance, my mother, the, uh, I'm a, a little bit familiar uh, with your particular disability only because my mother was a speech, hearing, and learning disabilities audiologist and pathologist. So she had a lot of clients that had different different uh, 
types of uh, challenges. And I came to learn about different uh, challenges through her. And I know that, you know, for instance, uh, that people with cerebral palsy, for the most part, don't have any cognitive disability. Well, and if they do, there are underlying factors that make they they because essentially cerebral palsy is a brain injury and the brain injury could go either way so it could create cognitive stuff along the way mm-hmm. but it's not not necessarily yeah and that is why when I was in when I was in school, I went when I was from the age of two to when I was six, I went to a school for kids just with disabilities. And while that was good for my early learning and all that stuff, I'm so glad that I was eventually transitioned into public school because otherwise I would have been extremely sheltered. Yeah. But it, but like having disabled individuals being all that you know, you're not really learning what the world is as great as it was at the time. But if it had kept going, I would have been sheltered. And I really think that one of the contributing factors to me doing what I do now is partially thanks to you because for a while when I was a kid I couldn't really play outside so TV movies, music and pop culture was sort of my way into the world and Blue's Clues and the work that you and Angela and Michael and all everybody over there brought was such a big part of part of my life. Wow, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about Blue's Clues in a way that I don't think that you are typically talk to you about it and that is um what character beside your own would be your best friend if you met them in person <laughs> uh what blues clues character yeah besides mrs pepper well of, of course he would be partial <laughs> um that's hard to say uh, i mean Every character on that show is uh, so um, supportive. Mine would be mine would probably be Mailbox because mm-hmm. he's just a struggling comedian. That's all. That's <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you and Michael were at the co- at the helm for the music composing on that show and the production. What we what were those? schedules like because i know the turnaround was pretty quick for those songs uh yeah it was very intense uh 
we were at the studio every weekday and some weekends uh just from uh you know from morning till night just in order to stay on top of the schedule so it was a lot of hard work and uh and in fact in later seasons when we had other pilots and other things that we were we were kind of branching out into other work we had hired uh other composers to help us that was later and who are some of those for people that don't know if there's any ones that you'd like to shout out uh well uh jay walter hawks uh is st- i'm still very close with I, and i still play with him in uh in a band or two and he's he's immensely talented uh bernard devlin did a few might have been it i'm trying to remember if tobias wagner did any but i don't think he did any on blues clues i think he just helped on uh word world what i love about the sonic world of blues clues and how it sounds is it's like two guys in a room just jamming and I always gravitated towards that kind of cool, chill sort of vibe. Was that kind of something you were directed or when you got the pilot? Well, when when we first got the uh, the job, we got it because it was um, uh, they they wanted uh, organic sounding music. Um, and I remember some video that we saw that they had said that they really liked, which was just an upright bass playing this really great groove. And it was a video of a guy uh, pulling a wagon with a dog in it. And it was really cute and simple and organic. And that's the vibe that they wanted. And I was thinking, we can do that. And at that time, Michael and I were playing in a band together. Um, and Michael had a studio, uh, which he, and he still does. Um, so we uh, we went to his studio and got other friends of ours, including people that played in our band, Jay Walter Hawks, Jim Whitney, at that time, Adam Grant. Um, and they... Uh, just we just uh, played a bunch of stuff that came into our head and sent them a tape and that and that's how we got the job. So we stuck to that idea, like keeping it um, e- even if we used electronic music or something like that, uh, making sure that it was um, it felt like it had. Uh, we could, electronic stuff is used sparingly. I feel like it yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Very sparingly. Um, but we didn't want to give the message that uh, that there was a limit to to the world of the music that we did. Uh, we really wanted to give the opposite message that anything you have can make music. Um, yeah, for sure. But we just wanted to make it feel like it had, you know, fingerprints and uh like the opposite of AI, that it was like it had a personality. Do you remember the first time that you recorded uh, Steve's Steve's vocals for anything? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 
what were you for? What were you? I'm thinking rationally it must have been the theme song, but for some reason I'm thinking we are going to play Blues Clues. We are going to play Blues Clues like that song. Yeah. Um, and the mail time, the mail time must have been early on too. Yeah, that was uh, Michael and me. So I did the low voice, mail time. And he did the uh, the three in the middle, and then I did the one on top. Mail time. I yeah. love it. it was, uh... <laughs> no, but I the way Steve describes it is you wanted him to hit a um, kind of a higher note, and he ended up doing this Grover from Sesame Street thing. Yeah. Like, do you remember when you first heard his? "Quote unquote" version of it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 very close to the you know, the whatever version uh, you hear. I mean, that's I know. But when you first heard him do that, were you like, "Oh, <laughs> like this is something else"? Like this is because it's iconic that that Pee Wee Herman esque sort of scream there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Like, uh, I think Pee Wee Herman um, took from Grover, and Steve took from Pee Wee Herman and Grover. He loved those guys. Um, I love it. So I yeah. So I want to talk to you about a specific couple of recording sessions near the end of Steve's run and you end up working with um, the acapella group, the Persuasions, and then in the King special, you've got Ray Charles and you've got so many songs within that special. Yeah. That must have been such a huge undertaking, but well worth it. Do you have any memories from that? Oh, yeah. That was that was the best. Uh, so the Persuasions and Ray Charles they were never in the same room together. Yeah, we you know. Yeah. Uh, the Persuasions, we recorded in the studio in New York. And Ray Charles, we went to L.A. to record. Uh, well, I we recorded Ray Charles first. Yeah, he was, I mean, it was incredible. He was so talented uh, and natural. Like, he, he had, for some reason, he hadn't gotten... Uh, the lyrics of the songs before the session. Um, so when he showed up, they faxed them, faxed him the lyrics in Braille. I'm not sure how that works, but he was able to read. We saw him reading the lyrics, just feeling the paper. And then he was like, okay, okay. And, and he had it. I mean, he, he was so, he was, he, he was, and he, sang it his own way which i was he gave me goosebumps and at one point uh for the song um uh, there it is yeah he uh i i asked him if he could play the piano introduction on that song and uh i didn't i didn't expect him to say he would because it wasn't you know he hadn't agreed to that i just you know we're doing this thing with ray charles and 
he's one of my piano heroes as well as one of my uh, heroes for a million other reasons. Um, he's, he was a great piano player. Um, so he was sitting on the piano bench with me, which was really scary <laughs> because he's, you know, I, I, it was hard for me to kind of breathe and think of him as just another guy. Um, so, uh, I had to show him what the piano intro was and I played it very timidly, like, ah, okay. It's kind of like this. And, uh, and he just like scooched me over on the bench and said, no, no, it, that's not how it goes. Go like this. And he just, he played, he played it so with so much conviction, so big and strong. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And I never forgot that. I like now I think like, yeah, I should never play anything like timidly or scared because nobody wants to hear that. I have to do it like he did it. Like, uh, this is how it goes. Yeah, I just remember, you know, watching that and just loving that whole piece. Because here you are exposing kids to soul music and acapella stuff before acapella was considered cool. And, like, it's this you're you're opening up a whole world of music to kids at such an impressionable age where they're starting to form in small increments their own musical palette which is really nice great to hear because that's that's all we wanted to do that's so great yeah when the the persuasions uh are so terrific like and so sweet like they they took a bus to uh to new york um i think they were on tour they were in wisconsin and they had to change buses in chicago uh and then and then come to new york and it was uh, it was like a greyhound bus it was like a public bus and they were singing on the bus uh, for the people. And uh, when they changed buses in Chicago, apparently uh, the people that didn't, that they were leaving were crying because they were so sad to be leaving. Isn't that great? Like, and then they came to, to the studio and they were singing in the studio, not being recorded, you know, just singing and then singing in the lobby of the building. I mean, they're they're they were like mad. Yeah, there's a there's a fun little behind the scenes um, documentary about the make the making of the film and the recording session, and you see one of the members going, "I did this for my grandkids," or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, that is so sweet. <laughs> and I'm sure you had a lot of guest stars who were just game to do it. It's fun. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of them did do it because they had kids or they uh, had you know nieces or nephews or, you know, some kids in their lives that they thought, oh, you know, they really wanted to do this for them. So I kind of want to switch over to 
bubble guppy because that is a completely different musical kind of vocabulary. That's more like top 40 radio ready pop stuff. Yeah. Um, how do you exercise those muscles as far as like transitioning into that kind of style? Because that's a whole different. There, there's a whole different musical idiom for that kind of stuff. It's like kind of more production heavy and sort of that way. So, what, what was that process like for you? Uh, it was it was tougher for me. Um, because I didn't uh, grow up listening to stuff that would that was that production heavy, um, and it was also trying to imitate stuff that was very contemporary at that time. So we were trying to imitate Justin Timberlake and um, Pink, and you know a lot of people that were really popular right while this was happening. Um, which is a hard thing to do and still stay focused on the theme of the show and, you know, whatever is happening. In the- okay, that, those songs are very uh, curriculum heavy too and sort of yeah. research heavy. There's always facts within the song or what have you. Um, do you remember and it's been a little bit, but do you remember any songs from your time there where it's like you finally got it? Like, what were some of the references you were given? And, you know, what was your song where it's like you really cracked the code? Well, there were there were a couple. And, you know, and I was really only a part of the group for a little more than the first season. Maybe the first season and a half, I I, I don't remember, but uh, yeah, because they bring in a bunch of writers for that show. Yeah, the one that comes to mind that had everything, all the pieces fit was uh, Bones. Oh, I love that song. Uh, a bunch of Bones, but there were there were a few. Um, but I think that might have been. The first one where everything really came together. So when you're when you're demoing a song, what is your studio setup like? I'm a tech nerd too myself. What are you using to what's your what's your demo setup? Well, we we did this in Mike's studio. So we would, you know, play with a, a chordal instrument, piano or and or guitar, bass. Uh, sometimes bass synthesizer um, and uh, drum loops and things to uh, get it together. And at that time, Mike had uh, plenty of outboard gear at his studio. So he had compressors and, um, oh, Mike Prees that, uh, you know, really beefed it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It just had a very clean sound. And of course the vocals, you know, we did as a demo and they would be redone mostly by kids. My memory serves, they recorded the vocals on the West coast. 
for that one. The kids. And with technology, they could be just transferred over and all that. Yeah, sometimes we had sessions with them over, you know, kind of over a phone, like uh, they'd be in a studio recording it, and we would be in our studio talking with them. That's awesome. And then I, so Word World has this sort of cult following, and so many people love it. And honestly, I only discovered it a few months ago. Yeah. And I love it. Like it's such a cool kind of welcome environment and it's so inclusive for everyone. So what are what do you enjoy most about uh working on that? That was a lot of fun for me. I like that it was the the you know, it's visually so beautiful. Gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And um I mean the other shows are too in different ways, Blues Clues and um, and Bubble Guppies, but they're less cinematic. Word World felt like a cartoon version of a movie in the way that I don't know, in the way the animation was shot and um, the perspectives, and so the music ended up being very cinematic as well which is really fun when you're working with like a tiny little musical palette. So, you know, there'd be like piano, upright bass, uh, trombone, and uh, various guitars uh, with a lot of lap steel guitar. So in a way, and oh, and melodica, a lot of melodica and little little bits of percussion. That was about it. We rarely had any other instrument. That's really fun when you're making like some giant movie-like transition. You're trying to make it sound as if it's like giant, like a Star Wars thing, but you just have these tiny little instruments. <laughs> it's really, it's fun. It's it's like, uh, it makes it very cute. I, I mean, I love it. And I, I know people that have worked on it on the voice side of things. My friend Tyler Bunch works. Uh, he's, he was great. I love Tyler so much. Yeah, me too. Great. Yeah, he and his he range did. is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he can do so much. He's a chameleon when it comes to voices and sort of accents and kind of shaping a character. Oh yeah, he worked on Blues Room as well. Yeah, a lot of crossover, a lot of overlap. Yeah. yeah. So, speaking of Blue, I mean, so the show got rebooted, and the show got rebooted in 2019, production started in 2018. You weren't involved in the initial show, but there was this outcry to kind of bring it back. Yeah. You're helping Josh get to, you're helping Josh find his notebook. Right. And what's it like when you get that call to kind of go back into the health shaker for a little bit? Oh, it was great. I loved it. You know, those are uh, really uh, fun, nice people. I got to, uh, a lot of the scenes were with Steve, the ones that I did uh, in the movie. 
and uh and that was that's so fun i mean uh all those guys all the live hosts uh have great senses of humor and they're yeah really josh is a dear dear friend of mine and an advocate for what we do so he's uh so he's donovan i haven't talked to steve yet but i you know just hearing everybody just loves each other so much yeah uh, that's great to hear that uh yeah i'm not surprised that he's yeah i mean he these are great people so you end up you end up doing the movie and there's this big new york city premiere and you were there and what was that reaction like that's huge oh that was great that was really fun yeah yeah that was great and um, I got to see it a couple of weeks early because I got to do uh, press for the film and do interviews for it. Um, and it was just so cool to just see Blue's Clues being put in the cinematic kind of world. It was so rewarding. And it can, the film isn't just for kids for family i mean my my fiance and i watch it all the time because you want to comfort movie it calms you down when she's having a rough day and we we just and we love mr salt's contributions to it we just <laughs> we, I, it's so i was so glad you were back oh that's great I yeah, I loved it. I mean, I I loved being back. Anytime I get a call uh, for that, I, you know, I, I don't have to really think much. It's just absolutely, it's great. Everybody loves the Steve version of the theme song, like the instrumental version. My favorite Blue Creek theme song is when Donovan came in. Yeah, I just love the energy of that and how it still has the musical. The musical elements of Blue's—it's familiar yet different. So, I love Donovan's inclusion and giving him vocals on this theme song. I don't think Steve had any vocals for the main titles. Yeah, it was uh, it was punchy. The uh, when Donovan came in, we put in like these horns, and it was like bigger and punchier. It had like a Latin feel to it too. I I really love that. Yeah. Same thing same thing with the song for the one hundredth episode, like one hundred days or whatever like I love. Oh that. yeah. I don't think anybody's ever really talked to you about this stuff at a technical level. So I'm the one I'm very happy to have been able to be the one to do that. Uh I hope you know, I hope you revisit some of this stuff after we talk because it really is it's a it's a piece of children's media history that is often kind of glanced over, but you guys did some special stuff. Oh, thanks so much. That's great. You know, when when you're in it, it's very exciting to simply uh be making a living uh doing music. And being in, you know, like completely in it, like uh, under pressure to get stuff out 
as fast as possible and you want to make it great. We really wanted to make it something that um, that was that that we really could be proud of, that we could really enjoy as, you know, as music. So we always had the philosophy that that there's very little difference between kids music and music for adults. You know, kids appreciate exactly what adults appreciate. Maybe in a different way, but they they learn to appreciate something about it. Yeah. I mean, one of my first musical loves were the Beatles. Oh yeah, mine too. And my favorite Beatles song, I tell people this all the time and they laugh at me because it's so sort of like off-center. It's Octopus's Garden. Yeah. That song is just so unique and it's so inviting and so warm and so kind of in its own world. And I was listening to that stuff the same time as I was watching Blue. And it's like watching stuff like Blue really informed my musical sensibilities, my comedy sensibilities, the way I present this show is all based on stuff that I took away from your work, Angela's work, all the writers, all the uh, consulting, everyone that worked on it left a mark. Oh, that's great. I kind of like to turn the tables. Do you have any questions for me about what I do and my work? We're just meeting for the first time, but what do you want to know? Yeah. Uh, how long have you been? You, you've been doing this podcast for 13 years. Yep. So uh, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you? I'm 28. You're 28. So you've been doing this since you were 15. Yep. Wow. I can't imagine. The reason I can't imagine it one of the reasons <laughs> is because when I was 15, we didn't have anything like this. So yeah. I just can't imagine. And there wasn't a lot of this out there. So I taught myself. Yeah. I built this from the ground up. There's no, there's no guidebooks. There's no how-to instructions. It's just, Throwing it at the wall, throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks. And honestly, this podcast, it started out, like I said, as a top 40 radio show. It was live for four hours a day, five days a week. And then I realized I can't do that. That's physically taxing for anyone. So I need to transition to the podcast realm and it's where I've been ever since. And when when I what I learned is not everything has to be extravagant. Not every but there doesn't have to be a laser effect. There doesn't have to be a zip or a zap or a, a bumper right there. Like all the all that matters is you and I having this conversation. I love that. Love that. Yeah. I agree. A conversation had you ultimately realize that what's important to you and what, and then you extrapolate what's important to maybe anybody uh, listening is uh, just a genuine conversation and not like all the bells and whistles of production 
And now there are some production elements, but it's very minimal. You know, yeah. there are, you know, because if you keep it totally raw, why not just stare the phone call? You know, like, like so I try to smoothen, that, smoothen it out a little bit. But other than that, it's like, just keep it real. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So as we wrap up, um, where can people connect with you and talk to you? Where can people find you? Uh, well, the best place is probably my website, which is uh, nickbalaban.com. And, uh, and you can hear a bunch of my music on there, um, playing with other people. And uh, I don't know, there are links to my records and other kinds you of... You got some fun Blue's Clues demos on there, which is kind of fun. Yeah, one tab is a, a bunch of stuff that I've done for kids. Uh, oh, and Go Noodle. I did all the music for uh, Awesome Sauce. Oh, uh, I love that. I love that. A couple of my friends uh, write for that stuff. Greg Lee and McPaul Smith and those guys. Oh, I great. love them. Yeah, Kitty High Five and all that stuff. So... So my final question for you is, when I have these conversations, and it's kind of funny that I'm saying this, but I don't intend to make an impact on the person that I'm talking to on the other end. But what have you taken away from our time together today? What have you kind of taken, what have you, what has stuck with you from this? Well, it made me feel great. I mean, I, I feel like we have a very similar aesthetic. I think I may. I think I made a new friend today for sure. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, we both really appreciate like uh, real human stuff. I was just talking with some people today about the nature of creativity and how AI is about to be able to imitate, you know, anything. And so we were thinking about what makes us human. Then, like, what? What's the, what, what makes, what's the difference? That was the, the conversation. What, what's the difference between good music and music that doesn't really strike us as, as good, whatever it is. And I feel like successful art in any medium is an expression of the artist. It could be a really broad expression, or it could be a very detailed expression. If it's a broad expression of who we are, it's going to be a lot easier for AI to imitate it. But if you try to get to know yourself as well as you can and don't stop, keep trying to express yourself through whatever art you choose. And by the way, you don't have to be an artist to do this. I mean, this is a human um, instinct. I mean, this is just being human, uh, self-expression. As you get closer and closer to being able to express who you are through what you do, I think that makes your art more and more effective. It's like, whoa, nobody else sounds like that because that's that's who this person is. And th there's an authenticity. Authenticity. Yeah. And a fingerprint. Yeah. And I really hope that what we 
what we've talked about today in my work and stuck with you in some type of way. Okay? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, man. Oh, thank you. This was a pleasure. This was this was great to uh, I'm I'm so happy to uh, feel like uh, you, you know, you get uh, it's great to meet people that feel the same way that I do about these things. Thanks for hanging out with us at the DJ Bob show. If you like this episode, drop us a line at DJ Bob at gmail.com. That's DJ Bob R-U-N-K-E-L at gmail.com. Let us know what you liked most about this episode and what other guests we should have on the DJ Bob show. Thanks so much again for hanging out with us. This is Nate Beagle, your humble announcer.